All right, well, let's pray, and we've got uh, a lot to dig into this morning. Jesus, we just ask that you be with us as we study your word, as we um, understand more about who you are and what you have set out to accomplish in each and every follower of you. I pray that as we step into 1 Corinthians, as we go down this road, Lord, that it would be a, um, a powerful and transformative stretch uh, that you would shape in us a, a church that understands the gospel and sprints towards um, being made into your image, being made holy. Lord, we ask that you would do a great work in our church this year as we, as we study your word, as we study 1 Corinthians, which you do, um, do a lot of work in us, Jesus. We need it. We need you. We need more of your presence, more of your spirit. And we ask that you would fill us and use us for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I want to start with a couple of things. I, uh, we got a chance as a family to go up to Idaho this last week and spend time with the Sprinkle family. Uh, if you've been around Anthem for a while, you know Preston and Chris Sprinkle. Preston was one of our first elders here at Anthem Thousand Oaks. Uh, they moved up to Boise a few years ago to start a college, and now Preston works full-time for a ministry uh, called the Center for Faith and Sexuality. And we had a great time. Our families had a a phenomenal trip together. It was such a wonderful experience being together with them. They're great friends. The Regan Strife's joined us, and we just had a, an absolute blast. I share that with you, not just to tell you, hey, I had fun last week, um, but a big part of going into 1 Corinthians, uh, a lot of what we're going to deal with over the course of this book, and I'll dig into this more as we, as we kind of set the table for it, are specific issues that were in the church uh, that Paul was writing to address. So not necessarily like generic issues like, hey, all Christians everywhere might be dealing with this or all churches everywhere might be dealing with this, but specific to Corinth, Paul was writing and dealing with some of the elements and one of the elements that he deals with is homosexuality. Uh, Preston and Chris have given their lives to studying and understanding and building relationships with people in the LGBTQ community and working diligently to demonstrate love, to show a deep heart uh, for people, and to help the church understand what that relationship and what that dynamic uh, needs to look like. Preston will be here on March 17th, and he will be preaching uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which does deal specifically with homosexuality as a part of the, the scriptural narrative as we go through it, and then that night on March 17th, he'll be, he'll be doing a three-hour forum here at Anthem Thousand Oaks uh, to walk through with us as a church a lot of what uh, they have learned over the last, it's been a five-year journey for them of working to understand and build relationships with and understand the theology of uh, the church and the LGBTQ community. So I want to encourage you to just be aware of that. Know that we, um, that we will interact with that in 1 Corinthians and we want to approach it uh, in a in a healthy and conversational way. And Preston is a, a great and dear friend who has history with Anthem as one of our elders and can contribute in a big way to that conversation. So just note, March 17th, it's gonna be a great day and a big day. And I wanna encourage you towards that. But we just spent time with them and it was amazing to, again, just see their heart and their, their joy. And while it is a heavy conversation, they have great joy in being able to uh, uh, to do what Jesus has asked them to do and to live their life in this way, and it's awesome to see that lived out. All right, so before we dig into our text today, we're starting a new series, the whole book of 1 Corinthians. It'll take us 
uh, roughly through the end of November to finish out uh, 1 Corinthians with a couple of pauses in the series to talk about practicing the way of Jesus, uh, a series that we started last year and will continue on over the next few years, continuing to touch on issues related to practicing the way of Jesus. But I want to lay the groundwork for the letter of 1 Corinthians before we get into the text that we'll be studying today. Um, there are different ways that New Testament letters are written. Some are written very generically. First and second Peter, Peter writes his letters not knowing who's necessarily going to read them, fires those things off, and the expectation is that every church, every Christian would read it, understand it, pass it on. Read it, understand it, pass it on, and that it has this sense of just going off into Christendom. Uh, Paul wrote Colossians as an example with the expectation that that letter, though it was for the Colossian church, would be passed on to the Laodiceans and passed on beyond that, that there was uh, a semi-specific component to it, dealing with some of the things that that particular church was dealing with, but with the full intention that that would be um, passed around regionally and understood beyond there. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are written very specifically to the Corinthian church. This doesn't mean that they're not scripture that have application for all people for all time. It has a different application than that. That is 100% the application, or that is 100% the understanding of all scripture is that it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But when we read 1 Corinthians, we understand that Paul was not dealing with generic Christianity. He was dealing with specific application. A church that had issues that were going on in that church that he deals with. He will apply a universal gospel, so what we always believe to always be true about Jesus to very specific situations, even to the point of saying, I heard from Chloe that this was going on. Like that kind of a situation goes on in the, in the letter to the Corinthians. And so we need to understand as we're reading this that Paul's approach is to take the issues of life specifically and show us how the gospel applies to very specific instances and struggles that we have. I don't know if you've ever experienced this as a, as a Christian where it feels like maybe the preaching or even the Bible is more generically applied, but then there's my unique situation that doesn't feel like it has any text that speaks to it. And it can be hard to bridge the gap between uh, the, the big picture of the scriptures and the specific things that I'm going through. One of the things that Corinthians teaches us, even if the exact circumstances are not present in our church, it teaches us how to apply the gospel into a very specific and unique context. So not only will we read the context of the issues themselves or the generic gospel, the big picture, generic's a, no, a different kind of word, the big picture gospel, but we're also gonna read the how-to. How does the big picture gospel apply to life in specific uh, instances? So we'll look at all of those kinds of things. Now let's talk about Corinth as a city. One of the things that I learned as I was studying this, I did not know this before, uh, but Corinth, a hundred years before the writing of this letter, was a ghost town. Like an actual, literal ghost town had been abandoned. By the time we get the letter to the Corinthians, it is a bustling town, and we'll talk about the development, but it had been abandoned by the Greeks when the Romans took over. In 68 AD, Caesar issued a call for an overcrowded Rome to move to other cities, and one of the key cities that he populated was Corinth. So about 100 years before the writing of Corinthians, 
Corinth went from nobody living there and an abandoned town to a bustling, uh, commentators compare it to the Wild West where everybody was an entrepreneur, everybody was trying to establish a business, everybody was trying to establish uh, society and position and status because it was wide open. And so as we look at these books, when we think about what to teach, we don't just kind of open up the scriptures and say, all right, Lord, Nehemiah or 1 John or Exodus. We try and understand what are the issues going on in the church, in our community groups, or in our broader context, our community or our nation, and we try and preach into those things specifically. When you look at Corinthians, one of the things that you see, uh, a guy came up to me afterwards and said that in another uh, church they had looked at Corinthians and they had jokingly called it Californians because the the culture aligns so closely with the way that we approach life. And I want you to just think for a moment, uh, an entrepreneurial attitude. Seems like everybody's starting something somewhere or at least thinking about starting something somewhere. A economy-focused environment where as the economy goes, so does the collective emotion of the city. Uh, the, the way that they approach life is economically based Status is based on socioeconomic factors. This is a huge part of this city. They would buy and sell friendships and their influence was based on how quickly they could make money and how quickly they could spend money. Does any of that sound familiar? This is a big part of the life that we live in our current culture. And while I'm not pointing a finger and saying, y'all are struggling with this or I'm struggling with this, I'm more looking at it from the perspective of saying, this is the culture that we are in. And one of the issues, anytime we are in a culture, well, there's a, there's a fine line that's being walked anytime you're in a culture. That fine line is this. There's the temptation to escape the culture and be totally distant from it. To say, that is them over there. Those wicked sinners, those evil people, they need to be dealt with and we can kind of judge and condemn them from a distance. And there's this sense of an us and a them mentality. And that's one of the temptations as followers of Jesus. And uh, commentators have said that that was the Thessalonians. So when you read the letter to the Thessalonians or the letters to the Thessalonians, Paul is urging them back towards a different way of thinking. Don't escape from the world. You have to engage the world. The Corinthians were falling onto the opposite side of the spectrum where they had a deep love and familiarity with the world and it was hard to distinguish the church from the world. The issues that they were dealing with as a church were the same issues that were being dealt with in the world and were being brought into the church. And Paul, while he told the Thessalonians, you need to be a little less separate and a little more engaged with the world, to the Corinthians, he's telling them, you need to be a little more distinct from the world. The presence of Christ in this church needs to be more clear than it has been. You are not distinct enough from the world to where what would motivate somebody to follow Jesus. If they come into the church and you look just like them, why change anything? What difference exists there? And so those same commentators that say that about the Thessalonians will talk about how the Corinthians had become very familiar with the world and the church itself needed to grow in their distinction, their holiness, their application of the gospel. And that's ultimately where we'll go with this and we'll dig into the, the text here in just a moment. As we go into this, one of the things that you'll note is that the Corinthians did not necessarily have theological error. 
Uh, if you read through the Galatians, the Galatians were struggling with how to apply the, the flesh and the spirit and where that all fell, uh, what was work-based and what was spirit-based, and Paul was writing to help correct a theological error. Oh, you foolish Galatians, how you have abandoned the gospel. That is not the case with the Corinthians. Paul built this church, he founded it, he taught this church, he showed them how to walk with Jesus, he gave them uh, the, the theological foundation that they need, and they have not strayed from it, but they are misapplying the gospel to the way that they live their life. We believe it, but we haven't quite figured out how to live it out. And so as we go into this, I want you to understand that there's not as much, there's a ton of gospel in Corinthians, but it's less focused on correcting bad belief and it's more focused on reapplying the gospel to the way that we live our lives. It's going to affect the way that you live. So one of my encouragements for you as we go into this is to be prepared for this letter to strip away some of the comforts, some of the ideals, some of the familiarities with the world that have caked onto our lives that Paul is writing and saying that can no longer be your way of thinking. You need to let the gospel parse those things out and shave them off. When you think of the writer to the Hebrews saying, let us strip off the sins and the things that so easily entangle and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, that's the letter to the Corinthians is Paul stripping away the sins and the things that so easily entangle so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So it might hurt a little bit. How many of you guys are doing juice cleanses right now? Anybody doing a, <laughs> doing a cleanse? All right. It might hurt a little bit. Uh, it might be pretty uncomfortable. Um, but the end result is going to be glorious. Uh, I don't know if you're actually, yeah, anyways. So, you guys ready to dig in? I think this is going to be really fun. I'm excited about 1 Corinthians. I hope you are too. For today, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. We will barely leave 1 Corinthians. So it's worth just having it open and ready. If I could ask, we've got people looking for seats. If there are seats between you and somebody else, if you could just scooch in and not have extra seats, that would be really helpful so that the, um, we could get seating taken care of. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, Sosthenes. That's a great name if you're pregnant and looking for a name. Go Sosthenes. It's easy to say, rolls off the tongue. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you're taking Porterbrook, uh, which we'll talk about a bunch more in the year to come, you'll know that one of the things you're supposed to do when you study the scriptures is look for repeating words to help understand what is important. 
This is three sentences, nine verses, three sentences, and the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned nine times. Paul is working really hard to establish Jesus Christ as Lord. And when you think about it, this is not necessarily a part of the sermon or my notes or anything like that, but when you think about what's going on in Corinth, everybody's an entrepreneur, everybody's a businessman, everybody's trying to be successful and establish status. One of the things that needs to be established is that you are not the Lord of your own universe. Jesus is. As a part of his church, as a part of his story, he is the ruler, the Lord, the authority, and we need to walk in that way. And so Paul is subtly reminding the Corinthian church every step of the way that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this is an important thing to understand with intros. Uh, I actually love the intro and the outro of the books of the New Testament. Uh, they can be easy to gloss over, to just kind of scan through and say, okay, Paul is telling them who he is. But that's actually not what's going on here. Paul is extremely familiar with the Corinthian church. Now, if you were here last week, my dad taught through Acts 18, Paul founding the Corinthian church, building relationship with them. Uh, there is a deep mutual love for each other, incredible familiarity. Some experts believe that what we have in 1st and 2nd Corinthians is actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians and that there was correspondence going back and forth between the Corinthian church and Paul and he was writing in response to the things that they were bringing up. And so there's a familiarity. So when Paul writes his name at the beginning, it's not to tell them who he is, but to teach them something. So this whole intro, as we look through it, we want to look at what is Paul setting the table for as we get into this letter, all right? So Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So let's start with Paul's apostleship. Uh, the word apostle, we will dig into this a ton. Paul deals with his apostleship quite a bit in 1 Corinthians. The word apostle means sent one or messenger, when you take the Greek word apostolos and you translate it to Latin, you get the Latin word missio, from which we get mission, missional, missionary. All of that comes from the Greek word apostolos. So it's important to understand that when we see apostle and missionary, sometimes we have those in entirely different categories in our mind. Now, it's important to keep in mind that our modern understanding of a missionary, I imagine many of you have Friends that are missionaries in other contexts, that have gone to other countries, that are doing evangelistic work, maybe you even support them financially. Our modern understanding of a missionary is a portion of the biblical understanding of an apostle, but not the entirety of it. So we have, uh, linguistically they're identical, but culturally we have applied different things to apostle than we have to uh, a missionary per se. But I wanted you to see linguistically how those things are the same kind of idea. An apostle's job description that you see as you read through the New Testament uh, has to do with establishing and strengthening churches, laying theological foundations. Paul will compare it to a master builder or an architect where he essentially is saying that the role of the apostle is to go in and help set this thing up so that it can sustain and multiply beyond that moment of its origin, okay? Uh, a couple of passages, Ephesians 2.20 talks about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is not a glory passage at all. Paul will talk frequently about how apostles are the scum of the earth. They're ditch diggers. Like it's hard work. It's groundwork laying. It's not glamorous. 
uh, but they do lay the foundations that the church is built on. They establish new ground. They're pioneers in a big way. Uh, talked about in Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So again, the apostles are listed among the gifts given to the church to build up the church. So as we look at this idea of an apostle, it's just helpful to have a framework for what Paul is setting up. Uh, An author named Neil Cole says this, He says, apostles are gifted with contagious empowerment and are tasked with the overall vigor and extension of the church as a whole, primarily through direct mission, apostolic designs of ministry, and church planting. So while not every church planter is an apostle as a one-to-one idea, the concept of starting new churches is an apostolic concept. So you may have pastors or prophets or evangelists or uh, teachers that step into an apostolic role to help start a new church. Uh, And apostles, according to Paul's understanding of an apostle, uh, are a part of that. And in addition to that, they do the work of strengthening the churches along the way. So you'll see Paul's apostolic ministry throughout. So just know that one of the things that's happening here is Paul is going back to Corinth, and in his apostleship, he is strengthening a church that's already been built, it's already been founded, the foundations have been laid. He will draw on those foundations a number of times to strengthen this church and make sure that the pillars are able to handle what is coming at them. So the work that he's doing is ultimately to build up the body of Christ. He is not in the business of tearing down the church. That is not what Paul does. Even as we get into Corinthians, you are going to find it is the messiest church that exists. There is more sin infiltrating the Corinthian church than any other church that we see in the New Testament. And Paul's goal is not to condemn them or blast them or be frustrated by them or any of those things. His goal is to build them up and strengthen them because he believes in the power of the gospel. So we'll see that as he gets into this. He talks about our brother Sosthenes. 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 He talks about our brother. He's an important guy uh, because in just a few verses, Paul's going to talk about how he baptized Crispus. Crispus and Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 are the two synagogue leaders in Corinth, meaning they are Jewish leaders that have now given their lives to Jesus. Sosthenes has left his role as the synagogue leader and has started to become a travel companion of Paul to go and do ministry. One of the things that you note is that often the ministry of uh, the apostles was to go into a city and they would start with the Jews and then move to the Gentiles. They started with the Jews because it's a Jewish story. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Paul, Peter, Barnabas, uh, the various contributors to the starting of the church would go to the synagogues first and start preaching and saying, look, the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah is here in the person of Jesus Christ. We can believe in him and walk in the fulfillment of the new covenant. Oftentimes, those people resisted the gospel. They were hardened to the gospel, very similar to the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry. You will see the Jews in a particular community resisting Paul, resisting Barnabas, and throwing them out or causing riots or things of that nature. It's not always Jews. 
Uh, sometimes, like in Ephesus, it was the pagans that started the riot, but other times it's Jews that start the riot and cast them out of the city. But in Corinth, the Jewish population was friendly to the gospel, so much so that the first leader of the synagogue, Crispus, and then the second leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes, both gave their lives to Jesus and started walking in ministry with Paul. It's a huge statement of openness to the gospel in the Jewish community in Corinth. Okay? So moving on. Verse 2, just 15, 20 minutes in verse 1. Well, uh, this is not going to go this slow the entire book. We'll, we'll kind of pick up the pace. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, real quick on this. I love that Paul says this. This is not to the church in Corinth. This isn't uh, to the Corinthian church. He's reminding them subtly, again, for a community that's fighting for status and leadership and for people to acknowledge them, it's not your church. This church belongs to God and happens to be in Corinth. We've said this a number of times about Anthem. If Jesus chose to shut us down and scatter us tomorrow, that is his prerogative. If we were holding on too tight to our existence and our presence and our influence and our role in the community, that would be disobedience. If Jesus came to us and said, it's time to shut it down and everybody's gonna go and be a part of other uh, churches being started, other church communities, and we said no, we would be disobedient. The church belongs to God. It's his to do with as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases. And so we need to walk in humble obedience to that at all times. That's a huge part of our eldership is walking in obedience to that. The church does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. All right, he continues. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. These are huge words. Paul's about to write to a very messy church. We're going to see issues of idolatry and people eating food sacrificed to idols. We're going to see issues of sexual immorality, not just homosexuality, uh, but heterosexual, sexual immorality, incest, um, ongoing issues that, that would just be, be just as familiar in the world are happening inside of the church. Uh, we're going to see issues of leader worship where people are saying, oh, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul or I'm of Peter, and they have their guy, they have their, uh, their leader that they really like his preaching and they really like his writing and they really want whatever he says, that's golden, and that's happening in the church and creating factions in the church, and Paul works to obliterate those things. This church needs a ton of help. And Paul starts the letter not by questioning their salvation. Their messiness does not render Paul curious as to whether they got the gospel. He knows they got the gospel, but they are struggling to walk in the application of it. This should be a massive encouragement to each one of us. Because <laughs> I understand. Paul writes and he says this, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified, translated into Latin, sanctus, translated into English, holy. Those holified in Christ Jesus. Most of us, when we're walking as followers of Jesus, do not feel holy. We don't feel like we have it all together. We don't feel like we are sinless because we see the brokenness of our thoughts, we hear the words that come out of our mouths, we know our actions day in and day out, and we struggle to reconcile that we are called holy when our lives don't always reflect it. 
Anybody feel that way? Anybody, just in general, does that feel like your personal experience as a follower of Jesus? We've talked about this a number of times, that the way that the Bible communicates our holiness is very important. That it happens on two levels. The first is your identity in Christ. You are justified by faith, meaning declared righteous. So even though you in and of yourself are not righteous, you're not living a proper way, you have not fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, God, through Jesus Christ, has put a new identity on you and said you are holy and blameless because he's applying the righteousness of Christ to each and every follower of Jesus Christ. So that is the gospel in a nutshell, is this imputed righteousness that Jesus and his righteousness and his perfect life has been applied to you so that today... If you were to die today, you would stand before the living God, and if you are in Christ, he sees you as holy and blameless. This is a huge part of why we do not believe in purgatory, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, that there is some stretch where sins need to be worked off after you've died, because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. His death is sufficient for all of our sins to be covered and his righteousness is placed on all believers. So you are sanctified, made holy by the finished work of Jesus. That's one level. Then there's our day-to-day lives. And this is where a lot of us feel like a mess. We know our thoughts, we know our words, we know our actions, and we wonder, we even wonder, am I really saved? How could this stuff come out of my mouth? How could these thoughts go through my head? How could I be that inconsiderate? How could I lack compassion like that? How could I do that if Christ is truly in me? And so we start to question. Paul does not question their identity, but he will call them to a much greater walk with Jesus to let the holiness of Christ be applied to each and every person on a day-in and day-out basis more so than ever. So the invitation of the scriptures is that you are declared righteous and now in your life you are being transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's Romans chapter 12. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's in Philippians. That you are being made into the likeness of the image of Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8. All of these are said to communicate process. That as you give your life to Jesus, you are declared righteous from day one and you have stepped into a process of being made like Jesus and grown in holiness. The expectation is that you do not need to be clean and ready to come to Jesus. You can come to him at your absolute worst. But the expectation is that you not stay there. That's not the gospel. It's redemptive. It's restorative. It changes us. It moves us towards Jesus. And that is at the core of the gospel. So much so that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, when we get to chapter 5, will deal with the sexual immorality. And when he gets to the point of a person being unrepentant in their sexual immorality, unwilling to change, he tells the church to purge the evil person from among you. And that becomes that line of somebody that's saying, not only am I sinful, but I'm unwilling to change and move towards the likeness of Jesus, Paul says, well, treat that person like an unbeliever. That's the person that hasn't gotten the gospel yet. That's the one that doesn't understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We need to be ready to walk towards Jesus, and Paul will invite us into an active life of sanctification, of being made like him. 
So that, all that comes from to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. There's a lot more here. Let's go. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has used his words very intentionally. You are called, as is the Corinthian church, to be saints together. So you're sanctified. That means being made holy. To be a saint is to be a holy person, a set-apart person. Again, uh, if you grew up in a Catholic background, we don't hold to the Catholic understanding of sainthood because we believe in the sainthood of all believers. So not that unique people would be called out as saints, but that every follower of Jesus is called a saint by the scriptures or a holy one. So your new identity is that you are one of Christ's holy ones. You are one of his saints, and you're called to live that way, to apply the gospel and its call to faith in Jesus to your life. You're called to be saints, to live that way, to act that way, to decide that way and speak that way and think that way. So when Paul goes into whatever is honorable, whatever is holy, whatever is pure, whatever is good in Philippians, he's trying to teach us to live as saints in this life. So you're called to be saints together. One of the key issues of the Corinthian church is the factions, the divisions that exist in the church. The divisions are going to exist over a couple of things. They're going to exist over the leaders. I like this leader. I like this leader. I like this leader. So consider a modern example. I really like uh, Grace Community Church and John MacArthur. I really like Bethel Church. I really like uh, Stephen Furtick. I really like John Piper and Andy Stanley. There are people that will grab a hold of different leaders or camps and say, this is my, this is my tribe. This is who I roll with. This is who I listen to. They, they help shape me and my theology and my expression and my understanding. And Paul's saying, wait, we need, to, we need to knock that off. You are called to be saints together in this story of God with all people who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at other believers around the world, you're not to look at, that, at them with contempt or competition, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the calling of believers, is to be saints together. And he will apply that to the local church and also to the universal church, that we have a, a different understanding of this new family of God that has been given to us through the gospel. Saints together. That's going to be a huge theme that Paul will tackle as we go through this. He continues on and says, uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, like I said, Paul will mention Christ Jesus or Christ Jesus nine times in three sentences. He's working really hard to make sure that the Corinthians understand the role of Jesus. Like I said, he's going to get into Peter and Paul no Mary, uh, he's going to get into uh, Apollos, the different leaders that each person in the church seemed to identify with, he's going to try and eliminate them and point to Jesus. He's doing that in the intro by making sure that they know Jesus is the one. He's mentioned his own name once and Jesus' name nine times to put the attention, the glory, the affection, the source of all things, life and godliness, come from Jesus and Jesus alone. This is really important for him that they understand this. It's Jesus that enriches our lives. So when you look at verse 5, Paul gives thanks because in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. 
What you have is because of Jesus. So you're, we're going to get into how the Corinthians had different um, status opinions based on different spiritual gifts. They would apply value to some of the more prominent gifts and lesser value to some of the less prominent gifts. Paul will use the description of the body of Christ and some of the immodest parts of the body. It's a really fascinating passage that Paul uses immodesty to describe some of the hidden gifts or some of the the background gifts that support the church as opposed to maybe some of the more glamorous gifts. And then he talks about everybody wishing they were a different spiritual gift. And here he's saying, look, the point is not what gift you have. It is Jesus that enriches our lives and that gives us all gifts. It's critical that we understand that. That we are under the banner and under the name of Jesus and he is the unifying factor of us as a community. And when we get that, then we can find unity. If we're competing on spiritual gifts or wishing we were a different person, wishing we were a different gift, wishing we had a different life circumstance, then we're always going to be find ourselves and we're always going to find ourselves disunified at a core level because we're not striving for life together in Jesus and being grateful for what he has done in us. I don't know when the last time, or if you've ever done this, where you've taken a life inventory and you've looked at what your life would be like without Jesus and what your life is like with Jesus. This is a great, th- if you're ever just 6 a.m., coffee's hot, you've got your journal open and you don't know what to do, uh, open up your journal to two blank pages and write out what your life would have been like without Jesus in it and what your life is like with Jesus in it and see what an enriched life looks like. Uh, The confidence that comes from Christ, the identity that comes from Christ, the, the power through the filling of the Spirit that comes from Christ, the joy that comes from Christ, the thankfulness, the purpose, the vision for the future, the hope that we have, all of the things that he brings into our lives that without Christ we are lacking and you see the enrichment of each and every life that it comes from Christ. Paul is calling on the Corinthian believers to to see, look what you have in Jesus. I thank my God that he in Jesus has enriched each and every one of your lives in all speech and all wisdom. What you have is from Christ and not from each and every one of you. You are not better than another because of what Christ has given you. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. In the intro, before he ever gets into any application, as he sets the table for what he's going to talk about, he is laying the groundwork for them to understand you are a part of something that Jesus is responsible for. He's the one that pours out grace upon grace, and you are the recipients. And Paul's saying, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that this is a system built not on your ability and your status, but on his ability and his status. So each and every follower of Jesus can always point to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He goes on and he says, so that uh, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift. Just again, a quick reminder, messy church, testimony about Christ confirmed in you. I have seen, even in the midst of all the sinfulness and brokenness, I have seen Jesus in you. So I know we're not dealing with, have you understood the gospel and have you received it? Paul is aware of their reception of the gospel and has seen the testimony of Christ in them. We're working on something different here. 
We're working on what it means to be sanctified, made holy, to start actually walking in the reality of being a follower of Jesus. For some of us, we gave our lives to Jesus and then we ceased any effort of walking in faithfulness or obedience. But we're just kind of skating through and saying, I, I said yes. I raised my hand. I walked forward. I got baptized. I went to Sunday school. I listened to sermons. But Paul is going to call the Corinthians into a deep life of the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of faithfulness, the walk in obedience, basically taking the gospel and applying it to our actual lives so that it trains the way that we speak, so that it trains the way that we act, so that it trains the way that we think, so that we are genuinely being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Paul wants to bring that into the lives of the Corinthians so that these sin issues that are in the church don't stay there. That would not be a victory if 10 years later Paul writes to the church and all the same junk that was present is still there. That would not be a victory at all. There, there is an expectation that they walk in faithfulness and that those things start to strip away. I'll just kind of stop and ask the question, do you have that expectation for your life? As a follower of Jesus, do you have the expectation that the life you're living today is distinctly different from the life you lived a year ago and five years ago and 10 years ago and that it will continue to be different a year from now and five years from now and 10 years from now? Do you have the expectation that you should look more like Jesus in a year than you do today? And more like Jesus in five years than you do today? And on and on. Paul is going to work hard to set that trajectory, to set that expectation for all believers, particularly in Corinth, but he does have to do some weed whacking first in order to help them see what it is that they're doing incorrectly and to help them move towards life in Jesus. All right. Last, he says, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I said last, not last, sorry, a couple of things. Paul wants to make sure that they understand that as they come together, there's no future mystery to be revealed. I don't know what your Christian life is like if you wait for the next book to come out that will reveal all the secrets of being a Christian and once that book comes out, finally we figured it out. Paul is writing to the Corinthians saying, stop waiting for that book. That doesn't mean that authors can't faithfully help us understand better the story of God. There are some great books out there that have done great work in, I would imagine, most of our lives. But there's no secret to be revealed. The way that Peter puts it, 2 Peter 1, 3, is that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church saying, look, you're not lacking any spiritual gift. There's no secret manifestation of the Spirit that is yet to appear that nobody else has that you're waiting for and you're just kind of looking for that thing that's gonna break open and all of a sudden the church is gonna be fixed and healed. You're not waiting for that. You are not lacking any spiritual gift. What you have is what God has given us for the body of Christ. It's that that we need to press into, not this waiting for some mysterious more that is yet to come. I hope that's a freeing reality to you. That our job as Christians is not to just kind of like 
look off in the horizon and hope that someday God will give us the thing that breaks open the church and makes us righteous and walking faithfully with him. That is not what he has set us up for at all. He has given us Christ and Christ is enough. He's given us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is enough. He's given us the scriptures and all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is sufficient. We're not waiting for more scriptures to be revealed. He's given us his church. And while his church struggles, as we see in every letter in the New Testament and the seven letters in Revelation, the church struggles because it's made up of broken people trying to live out the gospel the idea of the body of Christ is sufficient. There's not a mystery to be revealed there. So he wants to make sure that, that they understand that, and this is where he speaks to the end times. He actually speaks to the future. I don't know what your picture of the end times is. Uh, a lot of times it's depicted with fire and wars and explosions and chariots and horses and swords and all of that, and so it gets, it's like the theme of the end times is red. Have you ever noticed that? Every movie poster, every book, and whatever. It's all red because like fire and damnation and brimstone and that's the future. And so a lot of people are afraid of the end. Paul doesn't write to the Corinthians to make them afraid of Jesus coming again. He writes with hope. And when we understand end times or eschatology, the, the Bible, for those that are not in Christ, there is a fearful component to it. But for those who are in Christ, it is our hope. It is our future. It's something that we can rejoice in. But Paul's writing and making sure they understand that could happen in a day, a week, a month, a year, or 10,000 years, and Jesus Christ will sustain us till the end. And just about every generation, I have not done a thorough study on that, so this is totally anecdotal and shooting from the hip, but just about every generation since Jesus has thought that they were in the end times and has been able to point to issues in the world and say, see, look, see, we're in, we're, we're in it. This is it. This is the end times. Jesus is coming again here and now. Just about every generation. I haven't been a part of all of them, nor have I interviewed every generation. You may not quote me on that, and it's not real. Just from the gut. Jesus could come again this year. He could come again in 2,000 years still. I don't know that, and you don't know that. But Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians understand that whenever Jesus returns, you will be sustained by Christ until he comes again. That is the structure of our life here and now as we wait for a future of hope and glory and resurrection is Jesus Christ is sustaining his body, his church until that future. So we are not lacking anything. It's there for us to walk in faithfulness and righteousness and the goodness of the gospel here and now today. Paul is making sure that the Corinthians know you're equipped to handle all the junk we're gonna talk about over the next 15 chapters. You are equipped to be grown and shaped by Jesus in this area. So with that, I want to close with three things based on the final verse. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we look into this year and we look at what it means to be called into the fellowship of Jesus, your, your picture of fellowship, I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, maybe it's bad coffee and bad donuts, um, and that's fellowship in your mind, I want you to understand that the concept, the biblical concept of fellowship has to do with partnership, participation. 
The fellowship of the saints, the fellowship of Christ is, the way Peter puts it, is that we are partakers of the divine nature. That we are participants in the kingdom of God and in bringing his word to bear in our church, we are part of that. So what is it going to look like for you to be in the fellowship of Jesus Christ this year? And that's where we're going to wrap up. So three things. You are called into the fellowship of Jesus. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is to orient your life around Jesus. Sometimes we take on uh, Jesus as kind of like a, a brand of clothing that we like to wear. He's our Patagonia, he's our Lululemon, he's our Nike, whatever it is. And we take Jesus on and he's this, this new brand that we're putting on and we really like the way it fits and, and so we wear it all the time, like that kind of a thing. And, and Jesus is not just something that we add on to our life or that we like because he makes us feel better about ourselves or whatever. Jesus, when he comes into our life, is Lord and Savior over all. He is the supreme ruler of all things, creator of the universe, redeemer of your soul, and the purpose for the existence of all creation. So stepping into the fellowship of Jesus, the participation of the life of Jesus, one of the first things that needs to happen in our lives is that he becomes the objective of our lives. So you're not asking the question any longer, how can I build my kingdom? How can I make my world better? How can I do more for myself? You're asking the question, in my life, how can I glorify Jesus? How can I look more like Jesus? How can I point people to Jesus? And this becomes the overriding factor of all of our decisions and the way that we live our lives. And we are to do work we are to be diligent and faithful. We've talked about this. You're to be the best workers out there, the most diligent people in the world as a, as a gift to the world. You are demonstrating the grace of God to be faithful and diligent in this world. So Paul will correct the Thessalonians and say, stop being lazy. You've escaped the world too much. You need to step back into it. Some of us, that is the case. And Paul's inviting us into this life of the pursuit of Jesus and orienting our whole life around him. And here's what that will mean. If Jesus is your whole world, there are going to be things about you that will be stripped off. Sins and things that entangle, and that gets uncomfortable. Paul is going to write the letter to the Corinthians, and he is going to be stripping off things in their lives that they don't want to let go of. The world around them says they're fine. You can do that. There's no problem there. There's no issue with what you're doing. You can be a Christian and, you can be a Christian and, you can be a Christian and, and Paul is stripping those things away saying, that's not helpful. He even goes so far as to say, all things are permissible, but not everything's beneficial. We're talking about orienting our lives around Jesus and becoming more and more like him. So we're not dealing with permissible here. We're dealing with what is beneficial, what looks more like Jesus in my life. So orient your lives around Jesus. That's the first thing with this fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The second thing I want to challenge you with is to consider the role of community in your expression of faith in Jesus. I was reading through our Porterbrook uh, sessions for this week, and one of the things that it talked about is anytime there's a book on holiness, the cover typically is a single solitary person walking towards a big bright light. Inevitably, the holiness journey is solitary. 
That is never the case in the Bible, that it's a solo journey of one person walking towards the righteousness of Christ. The scriptures teach us so much more of an arm-in-arm, stirring one another up to love and good works, bearing one another's burdens, forgiving one another, holding each other to this life of Jesus, this holiness component that we are walking towards. So I want you to consider as you step into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, that is also the fellowship of his body. This is a huge point that Paul's gonna make in chapters 12, 13, and 14. October and November. A huge part of what he's going to say is that you need the body of Christ more than you ever knew. If you want to become more like Jesus, it is going to happen through the refining of the body of Christ, striving together for more of Jesus. So consider the role of community in your expression of faith. And lastly, and maybe this is just a a pastoral admonition or a prophetic admonition, I just want to encourage you, this isn't necessarily from the text, I just want to encourage you as a person, as an individual, to open yourself up to what God might want to teach what he might want to do in you this year as we go through this letter. As you look at the Corinthians, there are some that were open to what he wanted to say and there are some that were closed off to it. And those people are dealt with very strongly, the people that are closed off to what God wanted to do, what he wanted to strip away, what he wanted to shape and move in them. One of the most damaging attitudes that we can have towards Jesus and his sanctifying work is stubbornness and resistance. Open yourself up in humility, in repentance. Open yourself up to what God wants to change in you this year, to shape in you this year, to move in you this year. And be ready for it to hurt a little bit. But it's good. It's what you want if you're a follower of Jesus is more Jesus and less of you. So be ready for that. That's my encouragement to you as we, as we walk into this together. Let me pray for us and we're gonna close our time in worship and response. Jesus, thank you for uh, this letter to the Corinthians. Thank you for all that it's gonna cover and challenge and shape in us. Jesus, I pray that you would use it to refine and define for us the life of godliness that you are calling us into. We want more of that. So Jesus, we love you and we praise you and we ask that you would do great work in us as we spend time studying your word this year. It's in your name we pray, amen.